Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to talk about the Great Resignation. Many people have not returned to the workforce following the height of the COVID pandemic. Uh, higher than usual numbers in some areas quitting their jobs. And we'll be talking with several folks from the Utah Department of Workforce Services who will be joining us to talk about how this trend is affecting the labor force in Utah, the economic repercussions in the state, and what's being done to reverse uh, the trend. So we'll be talking with Mark Nold, who's Chief Economist with the Utah Department of Workforce Services. Mark Nold, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, We're also bringing in Sheila Olerich, who's State Program Specialist with the department. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. And uh, we'll be talking with Amy Lowe, Workforce Development Specialist with the Utah Department of Workforce Services. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Glad to be here, Tom. Let me start with Mark Nold, uh, again, Chief Economist uh, with the Utah Department of Workforce Services. Uh, so is has this been happening in in Utah? Are, are people not returning? Are people quitting in larger numbers than usual? Yeah, it is happening in Utah. It's happening all over the nation. Um, I think what we probably want to do is put that term, the great resignation, into its proper perspective. Um, it comes across as people are who were working are no longer working. They're just quitting and walking away. Really what's happening is people are quitting and finding better jobs. This is a an environment that is um, actually quite conducive to finding uh, jobs. You know, there's a, a labor shortage out there. Um, and the pandemic is the, the base foundation of this. And so anytime you get an environment where labor is in value, you know, where labor is tight, um, people are going to find better jobs. They're going to move up the scale. And so this great resignation is, yes, people are quitting in larger numbers than they have in the past, but I call them opportunity quits. They're quitting to move up and find something better. They're trying to find a job that pays more. They're trying to find a job that maybe is more conducive to their lifestyles. Uh, Maybe they're going uh, and finding a job where they can telework. And so there's just this um, great um, underpinning of churning going on in the economy. Now, some people have moved off to the sidelines. Yes, the pandemic has, has done that. It'll, it has taken some people who might otherwise be in the labor force and they could retire early or they I don't want to be out interacting with people in the COVID environment. So there is some who went to the sidelines, but that's not the story of the great resignation. The story is opportunity quits. It's churning. It's moving up the ladder. And so you have um, businesses and um, people with that employ skill sets from basically no skills all the way up to very specialized skills. And so everybody's trying to move upward on that ladder. And ultimately, when you have a shortage of labor and it's moving up that ladder, somebody in the end is going to be coming up short. And it's usually the, you know, businesses that are looking for no skills basically in their labor force and it's kind of like a game of musical chairs and in the end somebody uh, doesn't have a chair to sit in mm-hmm. yeah i was going to ask you i think you've uh, you've at least partially answered my question but i'll i'll ask this um w- you know which industries which businesses are being hurt most i guess it is the the the, the businesses who hire less skilled uh, workers? Yeah, and we'll put that into probably a greater perspective of, we call it largely the leisure and hospitality industry. So that's, um you know, your restaurant activities, it's going to be any of your recreation, 
It's going to be um, your hospitalities and your hotels and so on. This was actually the industry that was ground zero, so to speak, for job losses during the pandemic. Um, there were other industries hit, you know, immediately out of the gate, uh, healthcare, education. They made their bounce backs, though. But the leisure and hospitality industry had, um, you know, lost about 40% of its employment during the pandemic. Um, it slowly gained it back over the last year and a half to two years, but I'm talking about a year and a half to two years later. That's how long it's taken, and it's, and it's been very long and drawn out. And so its labor force was disrupted, taken away, and it's not just sitting around waiting for a year and a half for the, to be called back or waiting for opportunities to come back. It went off to something else. And so when the let's just call it the whole United States economy, woke up in mass about April of last year when we thought the pandemic was over. And everybody said, okay, back to normal. And all the businesses went back to demanding the labor they, that they had before the pandemic, but it wasn't there. Um, many people had made decisions not to come back. Part-time employment was down. Um, again, this hotels, the restaurant industries employ a lot of part-time workers or second job workers, excuse me, that's what I really mean to say. And these people, um, if you have a second job, that means you have a primary job. Well, if you lost your secondary job in the hotels or the restaurant industries and so on, when it opened back up, did you really want to go back to that second job? And these people aren't unemployed. They have a job, they have a primary job, but they stopped doing their second job. So that's an underlying part of the equation too. That doesn't show up at all in the unemployment rates. So that's another aspect of the labor force that's not participating to the level that it did before the pandemic. So all of these mesh, mesh together to make for one, an underlying shortage of labor um, across the entire span of the economy. And it just makes for getting labor that much more um, of a challenging process and a, a bidding process really is what's going on out there for labor. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for a job or looking for a better job, good news, probably can, you can probably find a higher wage, I'm guessing. Yeah. Is. And it, again, this is, um, this whole thing is relative to who's looking. Uh, the business community is the one who's having a hard time right now. If it's you're uh, selling labor, if you're looking for a job, if you're looking to be have like um, a business upskill you, this is one of the best environments I've ever seen in that regard for people to come out and find jobs, to find a job that um, in more normal times might not have hired them or embraced them. But in this environment, businesses are willing to grab them and take them and um, bear the burden to bring them up to the level that they would like them to be at. So this is a um, what we would call a seller's market. If you want to use a real estate kind of term, we're selling our labor. Business is, is the buyer. This is a seller's market right now. You made uh, you alluded to this. I wonder if you could expand on this, Mark Nold. Again, we're talking with the uh, he's the chief economist with Utah Department of Workforce Services. Among our guests, talking about the Great Resignation. Um, so, uh, what I'm reading is some folks uh, are taking this as an opportunity to maybe do some balancing on the work-life balance uh, scale. That uh, you know, so maybe talk about that. Yeah, one of the things you discover when you look back across economic history 
is big events have a way of taking subtle currents under the surface that are there and um, slamming them to the surface, so to speak. You know, things like wars and great depressions or great recessions. And then here we have this pandemic. And you have a, a situation where the people were desiring to have and can see opportunities for work-life balances. And let, let's look at teleworking, for example. The infrastructure was there before the pandemic for people to telework. Um, it was the business community that was reticent to allow it to happen in mass. Um, like even in our own office, we had one, maybe two days a week, some people could telework, but that was it. You need to come into the office. We need to be in here interacting. This is where we're the most productive and so on. And I call this um, pandemic the great experiment because it instantly forced us all to consider and actually go out and telework, those who could. And it was a very large increase. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does monthly surveying of the entire economy and talks to households. And this is actually where the unemployment rate comes from is the answers to the survey, but they didn't even have any teleworking questions until May of 2020, because now they had to. And we could see that about 35% of the economy had shifted over to teleworking. Um, when you looked at it, education levels, bachelor's degrees were about 55 to 50% had teleworked. Those with advanced degrees, 70% of them were now teleworking. So this gives you a perspective of this underlying current that was there, but the pandemic just forced it to the surface. And this is what is allowing people to look at it and say, hey, I now see opportunities where I can have a better balance between my life and my lifestyle and my family and supporting them directly, really, and um, working. And it has created um, the ability for people in some classes of the economy and some classes of the education levels to make, be able to make these kind of choices. Um, it's really done something else that's quite interesting if you now have the ability to live in Utah, but work your job in California or work it in Washington or wherever it is that you had been working. And so this teleworking has actually created a migratory class in the United States that's highly educated, highly affluent. You have high incomes now moving around the country. And we see Utah as a net importer of such workers, not a net exporter. And so you can see how this can um, affect local labor markets. You have people moving in, incomes from other states, bidding on housing prices and so on. And really they come in and don't help the shortage of labor because they're coming in already employed. Mm. Uh, I want to follow up immediately on that one. Um, so... Um... I guess states maybe now will be competing for these migratory workers, or or will they? Yes, and that's another aspect of this whole thing is you now have a much broader aspect of a local labor market competing with the whole United States, so to speak. I know a lot of them. Um, it's actually um, the answer to some of uh, Silicon Valley's issues where they wanted so many workers, but the housing prices and everything was so excessive because of that, now they can spread them out throughout the country. And so now maybe a Utah business that would um, is relying on local labor might suddenly be competing with Silicon Valley. 
now to get its labor. And so you can see how the trickle down effect like that through the country could push up um, labor prices in certain aspects of the skill sets and the labor force within the local economies. And now, yeah, now you're competing with a much broader employer base across other states or even across the whole United States. Let me turn to uh, Sheila Olerich, uh, State Program Specialist with Utah Department of Workforce Services. Um, so from the job seeker perspective, I guess good news, as we've been saying, uh, you know, that it, it is a seller's market for labor. Um, what, what, what are you seeing? Uh, uh, the reasons, uh, I guess all the reasons we've talked about here, right? Uh, work-life balance, uh, get better pay, better benefits. I guess uh, all, yeah. all those are reasons why people are maybe quitting their current job and going to another one. Yes, all of that, exactly. And I would say that most of them are trying to find um, a better wage. That is what I'm seeing is people are taking this opportunity and wanting to find something that either offers, you know, better health benefits, uh, better wages. And so they, um, they are coming into our offices and asking for assistance. And so I think that's what's awesome about um, the Department of Workforce Services is we offer a lot of assistance to job seekers to help them make that next jump to a better to a better job. We offer a lot of um, in-person resume classes, interview classes, um, and and I think like so when I've helped people um, uh, get jobs before, you know, I've sat down with them and I've looked at their resumes, and I would say that is the number one problem is people have inadequate resumes, and so even though it is a seller's market, so to speak, you are still competing. Um, for this better job with other people that also want this better job, right? And so your resume needs to be tailored to the job that you're looking for. When I've helped people in the past, I would look at their resume and it's too generic. It's just, okay, this is what you did, but is this what it, the employer it wants to see when he looks at your resume? So it's a really um, key point to like standing out uh, to get that interview is to have a adequate resume and so how to do that is really research the job that you want to um, obtain. Read the job posting carefully. All the, all the hints are in that job posting because the job posting will say the qualifications that are required and the qualifications that are desired. And if you have those qualifications, you need to insert them into your resume. A lot of large companies they don't actually have a live person looking at a resume. It is through a computer system and are picking out keywords. If those keywords aren't there, no matter how awesome you are, you're not going to be called for an interview. And so that is the first thing I would have any job seeker do is to go through their resume and, and tailor it for that specific job. Then if they are applying for multiple jobs, every job needs to have a tailored resume for that job. Very good. Um, and I'll come back to you a little later in the hour to talk about uh, tips for interviews and some other tips you might have and other services. So thank you for that. Let me, before we go to break, I want to turn to Amy Lowe, who's a workforce development specialist with the Department of Workforce Services. Um, and give me the, the perspective from employers uh, who are in this economy a little bit at a disadvantage, potentially. Uh, what tips can you give employers, businesses? Well, I have the opportunity to be sort of on the front line working with businesses and job seekers. My, jo my job is to really be the connection point between them. And so um, 
everything that Mark said is ringing true when we're saying that I'm, I'm on the phone a lot, I'm talking to employers and they're saying, what else can we be doing to be uh, attracting talent and retaining talent? So um, I just wanted to hit on again, I think it's important to be thinking about culture. Uh, a job seeker can jump ship for a dollar more and we're seeing that, but it's really important when, when Mark talked about it, and I think you talked about that, that work-life balance, there's been a lot of feedback from job seekers that are saying, uh, how, you know, I, I'm really focused on that work-life balance. I was working that previous position that maybe didn't offer those benefits or those other things. And now I am moving toward that, toward a position that I, that I need that health insurance, that I, that I want that opportunity to telework. But I'm really looking for that culture at that business. And culture used to be, uh, you know, a ping pong table in the break room and a, and a soda fountain. Well, culture's got to be more of, we're, the, the employer values you. We're, the employer's willing to bring you in, tr offer you that training and show that they're invested in you and then provide those other things to really retain that employee, maybe longer parental leave, um, you know, a, a ride share or some of those other things to really make them, them feel valued. And then, um, you know, I, I think we'll get back to this, but we have a lot of other things to help um, employers kind of set up some additional um, resources, maybe for training and things to bring on and retain employees. So uh, let me just follow up here, uh, and then we'll get into some more things later in the hour. Um, so you talked about some really good uh, things that can maybe attract in, in employees. Uh, you, you know, pr probably have to look at increasing wages, right, to, to be competitive, and, and then that, that can be a problem for the bottom line for the company. Absolutely. And we have seen, and as Mark said, we have seen an increase in wages. I, we joke in the office about, well, you know, when I was in high school, this is what I made. I don't want to say that was a long time ago, but, and, and what, you know, a high school student can now make. So we've seen the wage increase and we know that that's there. And, and, and the bigger change, I don't think that that has been a problem for, but we know that the um, smaller mom and pop businesses may not be able to afford those, obviously those, those big changes that the monetary changes, the other things. And so they're, they're going to have to rely on that mom and pop feeling that maybe a business is, or a job seeker is looking for, for that right fit for them. They may have to look at some other things. And um, I, I think it, we've seen lots of articles and information that some, unfortunately, businesses have, have gone out of business because they can't compete. Mm -hmm. Let's take a break. When, I, when we come back, I want to follow up with Mark Nold on that, how this is affecting the economy as a whole, um, and much more to talk about as well. We're talking about the Great Resignation. Uh, many people, as we've been hearing, uh, and maybe you're experiencing this yourself, um, maybe took some time off during the height of the pandemic and haven't come back yet, or maybe quitting to get a better job. Um, this is a phenomenon that's happening, and we're talking about this uh, with Mark Nold, Chief Economist with Utah Department of Workforce Services, Sheila Ulrich, State Program Specialist with the Department, and Amy Lowe, who's a Workforce Development Specialist with the uh, Department of Workforce Services. We'll have more following this brief break. Spanish language programming on UPR is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis, 52 Federal Avenue in historic downtown Logan. Open seven days a week, featuring triple-certified bird-friendly coffee, espresso bar, beans, brewing tools, and many gift options. Information and ordering at CafeIbis.com. 
And support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. This researcher spent years trying to stop greenhouse gases from cows. There's so much methane, so they burp and they burp and they burp. Then one day in the lab, a surprising discovery. When I first saw it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought something had gone wrong. Emission control on the next reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Great Resignation. Uh, people maybe not coming back to the workforce, people moving in the workforce because of new opportunities, and uh, it's a seller's market for labor. Uh, that has ramifications. We're talking about that with uh, three folks from the Utah Department of Workforce Services. Mark Nold, who's chief economist, uh, Sheila Olerich, state program specialist, and Amy Lowe, workforce development specialist. Let me start again with you, Mark Nold, on uh, this part of the program. Uh, I want to uh, talk about a, no, two other uh categories of people who who may be leaving the workforce either temporarily or permanently i think you made reference to this one if you could expand on this retirements uh do we have people retiring a bit early uh because of the the conditions uh, people taking this opportunity to, are we seeing greater numbers of people retiring yes we are and it's probably more of an issue across the greater united states than it is here in utah um, you, I wish I could show visualizations, but when you kind of um, build the entire populations and show them in the form of an age tree where you put men and women on one side or the other and then build um, age increments from zero to five, five to ten, so on, and you build it up through. And if you did that in the state of Utah, it would look like a Christmas tree where it's bottom heavy and it goes tapers up towards the top. But if you looked at the United States, it would be... Um, it would have two large uh, lumps, almost like the hips and the shoulders. And um, up at the top, it's where the um, baby boom generation is, is right on the cusp of mass retirements. And you don't have that here in the state of Utah. So let's look at it this way. For every baby boomer who would retire in Utah, there's probably two young people that have aged into the labor force to take their place at the United States level for everyone who would retire out. You're lucky to find one down at the lower end to replace them. And really that has gotten the entire United States economy to the point where we have had zero population growth on net for the first time since the census was ever taken in the United States economy. So we have no, um, population growth going on right now. We have base and that's also saying we have no labor force growth. So if you have, um, you know, this large amount of people who are baby boomers who would desire to retire, we just don't have enough labor across the whole United States to backfill them. And that's part of the reason why we're talking about labor shortages across the whole United States when only four states have more jobs now than they did before the pandemic. And of which Utah is one and actually has um, led the nation in job growth across the pandemic period. So it's not a powerfully concerning problem here in the state of Utah. It's more of a national problem and a national issue. 
And so if you're going to have labor force growth in the United States with that kind of a population structure that is going on right now, you're going to have to fill it and make it bigger with international in-migration. And that is a dialogue that's um, been kind of restricted over the last five, six years and so on. And so I think the very pressures of the economy and desire for labor is going to change that dialogue across the next 10, 15 years as we move forward. Um, the idea though is if you recognize the problem, then one, you see where the solution lies, but you manage the solution yourself. And um, so I think you will see some dialogue over the next 10 years moving more towards pro-in-migration, but in a managed fashion. And it's just because the economy itself will demand that. It's because with that population aspect of the United States moving forward through time, you have one of three options to deal with it. Number one, let the economy shrink. That seems anathema to capitalism, so I don't see that as what would be a viable issue. Number two is allow more in-migration to happen to restock the labor force in the United States. Or number three, replace the missing labor with robotics, artificial intelligence, technology. I think those last two I talked about in a combination will be the answer to the United States labor issues going forward. Um, you've heard dialogues about technology, artificial intelligence, taking jobs from workers. I don't see it that way going forward. I see it being part of the solution, not a problem. Very interesting. Yeah, as, as we look out, and th that'll be a long-term uh, situation, it sounds like. Um, what about folks? Do, do we see increased numbers of folks uh, having paused, perhaps during the pandemic, reevaluating their situation and, and then leaving the labor force to go back to college? Do we do we see increases there? Yeah, we'll see it. Um, it doesn't have to be back to college, but let me just talk about labor that has left the labor force and to a certain degree. And what we everybody 16 and older is what we call the potential labor force. If everybody 16 and older did one of two things, either worked or looked for work, that would be 100% participation in the labor force, but we don't have that and we never have had that. The highest we have ever had in the state of Utah, and this was right up to the Great Recession itself, was 72%. Now, our demographics have aged a little bit since then. You do have more baby boomers. Instead of 11% of the economy, they're now 16% of that labor force. That is a non-participation um, age group, 65 and older. So if you have more people 65 and older, your ceiling of how many can actually come and participate in the labor force will come down. Uh, right before this great um, um, pandemic hit, we were at 68.5% in the state of Utah. So 68.5% of everybody 16 and older is either working or looking for work. The pandemic pushed it down to 67%. So there's the difference, one and a half percentage points, which is about 40,000 people who went off to the sidelines and were no longer participating. Our participation rate is trying to work its way back upwards, but it's still not back to 68 and a half percent. So there's still a um, amount of people on paper, on the sidelines, in relation to how much participation there was before the pandemic. It, um, 
hit its depths about the end of 2020. It started to make a comeback again in that springtime of 2021 when everybody thought the pandemic was over and the business community opened up in mass. People have slowly been working and inching their way back off of the sidelines back into labor force participation. But yes, it is still not back to a level that it was before the pandemic. Mm. Let me turn next to reverse the the uh, order just a bit here. Uh, turn to Amy Lowe, uh, workforce development specialist with the Department of Workforce Services. So Mark Nold was talking about at least going forward nationally a need for um, you know finding workers uh, to to immigrate to workers to to come in. Uh, not as much a need perhaps here in Utah, but some need I would I would imagine. Uh, what if you talk to that uh, specifically? Is talking to Utah in employers, Utah businesses, um, so immigrants, refugees, I suppose. That, that would oh, be I a, like that he. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I cut you off. I like that he brought that up because one of the things that that I would recommend is that idea of diversifying your workforce. Things that obviously had worked for you in the past, maybe for recruiting or for that pipeline that you were expecting, uh, maybe isn't there anymore. So we do have. Um, we're going to be seeing a, a, an increase in an influx of refugees. You know, we have, um, we're expecting to see 1,500 to 2,000 refugees over the next year. And if anybody has ever worked with a refugee before, they are amazing. They're, they're bilingual, their work ethic is high, they are, they're, they're ready to come to work. And so that's a really um, great resource. The other thing about diversifying your workforce is maybe looking at what we consider an underserved population, those with a background uh, issue possibly, those with um, that haven't been in the workforce for a long time or have never been in the workforce. And this is the opportunity that they are looking for to get back in the workforce. And we do have several programs to offset training costs. We have an on-the-job training opportunity paid internships that we can help pay for, as well as helping you look at maybe a registered apprenticeship program. We have some funding for that. We can help get those things set up. But those are some of the things that we can look at to help an employer or those industries kind of set up some things. We have some current relationships, and I'm talking very locally because I work in Lehigh, but these are we have these all over the state. But, you know, um, a, a big healthcare company came to me and said, we don't have enough medical assistance. And so I worked with them to be able to coordinate with our local educational institution, which is a Mountland Technical um, College, to kind of set up a pathway so that those some of our customers that don't have that experience, we can help them um, with tuition and, and, and supportive services to get them into that medical assistant program at MTech, which helps them. And then um, they have um, externship spots at this particular um, health organization. And then they're guaranteed an interview at the end of the externship. And if they're hired, we get to use that on the job training opportunity. So just some ideas like that, that we have available at Workforce Services to kind of part make a partnership or a pathway between those employers looking for work, you know, looking for that for that talent pool, helping those underserved population um, and those educational institutions and really helping bridge that or make that partnership. Those are some ideas. Yeah. So building on that, I understand there are tax breaks, tax credits uh, for that businesses can get to, if they're serving uh, underserved populations. Correct. And they're, they're, they're quite good. They can be up to $9,600 or tax break, breaks for hiring uh, a veteran, someone that's homeless, 
someone in these underserved populations. There's something called a work opportunity tax credit and any workforce development specialist in the state can help you um, look at those tax breaks and how to access those. Mm-hmm. Understand there's also free bonding assistance, hiring individuals who can be harder to employ. So what are those types of individuals? So um, when you talked about harder to employ, sometimes employers are worried about a risk, especially with someone with a background um, issue. But we will bond. We have a, a fidelity bond that the department will issue to help offset those risks. Um, it's, it's a great program. It's easy to um, institute. And again, any workforce development specialist can help um attach that that bond to anyone that you think you are looking at hiring that you're worried about a risk. So these would be maybe uh, people with a criminal history, people on even people on parole uh, currently, I guess. Yes, and certainly we have a lot of we have a lot of relationships with um, those getting out of incarceration. We and that's part of our outreach. And so usually when we are marketing for those um, those job seekers, or we call them customers, those customers, that's a, when we, um, excuse me, when we go to an employer and say, hey, I've got this great candidate for your position, we'll let you know about all of those particular programs that that um, job seeker is eligible for, and we can help you yeah, facilitate those and, and make those happen for you. What about somebody who has no work history? You're maybe worried about them because of that. Well, so Sheila talked about the great uh, other services that we offer to help that person be ramped up to look for work. So help with the resume and get all those things ready to go help with those interviewing skills. And then we're going to probably look at that paid internship opportunity or that on the job training where we can reimburse 50% or 100% of the wages, depending on the program, to help offset those training costs. If they've never been in the workforce before, we know there's going to be a training, you know, a learning curve. And we want to help uh, make that uh, employer feel more comfortable as well as help really offset that training. And then open that door for that for that job seeker that wants to get back in the work, workforce and get over those barriers. Yeah. Uh, let me turn to uh, Sheila Olerich, uh, who's state program specialist with Utah Department of Workforce Services. Uh, so from the job seekers perspective, and we've established earlier in the hour, this is a great time to maybe change jobs or look for work because it's a seller's market. Uh, we talked earlier about updating your resume. What about preparing for an interview? Give us some tips. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the activities that we do here at the department is we hold mock interviews uh, with customers if they're interested. And I, I've done a lot of mock interviews. It's actually one of my favorite things. And the number one thing that I, now there's a couple of things that I recommend, but the number one thing that I recommend is that um, job seekers practice their, what they're gonna say in an interview out loud. In fact, I actually recommend that you go in the bathroom, you shut the door, you look in a mirror and you practice your interview. Because you know, no matter how well it sounds in your head, unless it comes out well and that you feel, you know, you're coming across confident or professional, you may bomb that interview. And so it's really important to first research the company to know, you know, what their culture is like, uh, what the job is about. I'll tell you, I have been on uh, several, um, interview panels where we've interviewed people and after they've left, we're like, we don't even think they know what they're applying for. Like it was so clear that they didn't research the job and you know, the, the business that I worked for. And then that's painful, right? It's like, they're not going to get the job. So research the company um, and be ready to share why you would be an asset for that company, like what you can bring to them. 
um, prepare examples to use in the in the interview um, that um, that use what we call the SAR method. Um, SAR S A R stands for Situation, Action, and Result. Um, so many um, interviews they're going to ask you questions such as you know tell us a time that you have dealt with you know, an angry customer, tell us a time where you haven't gotten along well with a coworker. So you need to have these, you know, pre-thought out situations already in your head uh, and be able to say them um, clearly to the employer that has, um, where you explain the situation that happened, the action that you took, and then the positive results um, based on that, on that situation. And if you want, I have an example to share where it makes yeah, more sense. definitely. <laughs> Right. Okay, so let's say in the interview they said, hey, tell us a time that you've dealt with an angry customer. So if this has happened to you, you could say something like, well, yeah, previously I worked as a customer support specialist for, for a cell phone company, and I got a call from a really frustrated customer. This customer had been passed along from person to person, and when she finally got to me, she was, she was really, um, really upset. So, you know, I walked her through resetting and reprogramming her device. And then when we got to the really, you know, technically difficult part, I went slow and uh, patiently with her step by step until um, every, until her device was fixed. And I coached her through it. I stayed on the line until everything was working fine. Um, and basically, I helped her solve the problem. Um, when we finished, she thanked me for, you know, going that extra mile to help her. And then she even sent an email to my supervisor um, telling her what I had done. And honestly, because of the actions that I took, um, our company retained a customer that could have easily switched to another different service provider. So that's the kind of stories that you need to think of where you're like, Okay, they're probably going to ask me, you know, tell us a time situation. So have some preset times in your head, the action that you took, and then the positive result. Yeah, that's uh, great. Uh, I, I can see why practice would be important on many levels, including, you know, culturally, we're kind of taught uh, don't brag on yourself, right? Don't put yourself forward. Where a job interview, you're, you're supposed to, <laughs> you know, you want to do that, right? That's true. I've had a lot of people that I've coached and they are so reluctant. They're like, oh, I don't like to brag about myself. I'm like, you have to brag about yourself. Mm -hmm. Other people are bragging about themselves. The employer wants to know what you can do for them. And this is your opportunity to shine. Yeah. It's the interview that gets you the job. Right, exactly. Uh, so I guess the, the best place for all this information uh, from employee or employer info, uh, perspective is what? Jobs.utah.gov. Is that the best place yeah, to go? Jobs.utah.gov is amazing. Uh, that's our um, when you type that in jobs.utah.gov, that brings you to our homepage. Uh, but right on that homepage, there is a job seeker link, and then you click that, and there is so much information there. There are um, job seeker tools. Um, we have a smart start guide that you can download that talks you through the whole process of creating a resume. It has assessments you can do. It has um, formats that you can plug in to create a resume. It has the uh, 10 most common interview questions. Um, anyway, there's a, a wealth of information. It also has links to all of our different employment centers that talk about the workshops that I have available. We have an amazing um, um, interview skills workshop. We have resume writing workshops, um, LinkedIn workshops. There's so many um, 
I don't know, so many um, resources that we have available. Plus then there's a link to um, um, all of our workforce development specialists. So, so Amy Lowe is on there, so you can, you know, you can link to anything. Um, also on our website, we have all sorts of information about our labor market. So that's a great place to go. If you want to negotiate a salary, you can click on the um, labor market for this particular job that you're interested in. See what um, employers are paying in your um, area of the state uh, based on whether you have experience or you don't have experience. Because also the beginning of, a, of, of you know, your job search when you first are looking for a job, that's a good time to um, negotiate a salary. We're good. Uh, time for another break. Uh, then we'll come back with a brief uh, final segment with our guests. We're talking with uh, Mark Nold, Chief Economist, um, Sheila Ulrich, State Program Specialist, and Amy Lowe, Workforce Development Specialist, all with the Utah Department of Workforce Services. We're talking about the great resignation, hunting for job, uh, seeking employees, and, uh, and the economy. We'll have more following this. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. Support also comes from utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. This is Science by the Slice. In 1960, as the Cold War heated up, the U.S. Army launched Project Iceworm. The top-secret effort was aimed at building a network of mobile nuclear launch sites under the Greenland Ice Sheet. Hampered by blizzards and unstable ice conditions, the project, located at Camp Century, was canceled in 1966. A 1.3-kilometer-long ice core was extracted from the site and, until recently, was largely forgotten. USU geoscientist Tammy Rittenauer is among experts tapped to analyze the unusual sample, which is providing clues about the Earth's warming climate. Rittenauer says data from the sample reveals the Greenland ice sheet may be more sensitive to climate change than previously thought. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. So we're talking about the great resignation, about the workforce, about businesses uh, trying to find employees, about how this is affecting the economy. And we're talking with three folks from the Utah Department of Workforce Services, Mark Nold, who's Chief Economist, uh, Sheila Olerich, State Program Specialist, and Amy Lowe, Workforce Development Specialist. If you have a quick uh, story about uh, maybe your employment or employer uh, troubles or experiences, you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Let me start with Mark Nold. We just have about seven minutes in this final segment here. I wonder, um, Mark Nold, if are we seeing, I don't know if we know, are we seeing migration within the state, people looking for work and moving city to city? Yeah, we highly assume so. Um, we don't, it's hard to get such information on a timely basis. Um, one of the real disruptions, to be honest with you. I know the pandemic disrupted a lot of things, but one of the things that really disrupted was when it hit was right when the decennial census was happening. And um, it really disrupted the answers to that uh, 
census to the point where the Census Bureau did not publish 2020 data because it was in their mind statistically weak. But we highly assume so. Um, we know that um, let's, in particular areas are receivers, others would be pushers, you know, or exporters, so to speak. But I think one that you would really focus upon would be like the St. George area where there's a lot of um, growth and in-migration going on down there. And it's a combination of coming in from other states or what's migrating in from um, across Utah. They've had um, even the Cedar City area and so on. Again, when we've evaluated our economy here in the pandemic, we decided to jump over the actual depth or losses of jobs in the pandemic and go back to the pre-pandemic level and then see where we are now in comparison to the pre-pandemic. Because you get these disruptions where you have 8% um, job, 7% job loss in the pandemic. Um, you get your jobs back a year later, it looks like 7 8% job growth, when in reality, it's neutrality. And so we went to before the Great Recession and where we are now with our job counts. And uh, I had made mention only four states in the whole country have job growth across that period. Us, Idaho, Texas, and Arizona. And Utah leads that whole group with about 4% more jobs now than before the pandemic. You go down into St. George or the Cedar City area, it's 8% more jobs now than they had before the pandemic. And that's just in two years. So you know that's being fueled by in-migration and uh, people coming into the, the area to work. And so it's either coming in from outside of the state or migration within the state. Let me turn uh, to um, Sheila Rich. We just have uh, about oh, a minute or so for this, and then we'll turn to Amy Lowe next. Um, Talk about uh, briefly about uh, job fairs. You have job fairs like you have one coming up. That's true. Uh, we have bi-monthly, um, or sorry, every two months we have a job fair. Our next one is March 3rd. Uh, it's from 10 to 1. And honestly, this platform is so cool. Um, you just go on to our website, uh, uh, register as a job seeker, and uh, sign up for a virtual job fair. Um, the platform is set up where there is... Um, a pavilion that you enter. Um, we have hundreds of booths set up. Um, each booth is an employer where they posted their jobs. You can have um, a chat with them uh, or you can do a, a video um, chat as well. And so you can apply for jobs. You can actually have an interview on the spot. You can talk to employers about their about their job openings. It's a great way to be at home and job search at the same time. We have a pavilion that has employers that also offer um, remote jobs. So if you're looking for a job where you work from home, you can go into the pavilion that has the remote job opportunities. Anyway, we really recommend that job seekers um, attend these um, this platform, this, our easy virtual job fair. Like I said, it's March 3rd, it's from 10 to one. Um, and you just register on our website, jobs.utah.gov. Um, I also want to mention that our website has more than 75,000 job listings at any one time. Like, um, if you're looking for different job opportunities, um, this is the place to go. Very good. Uh, let me turn to uh, Amy Lowe. Um, just tell me briefly how the Department of Workforce Services can help your company um, with recruitment. Well, I just want to make sure you all employers understand our services are at no cost. Uh, we do have jobs.utah.gov that allows you to get in there and list any positions that you have. 
And then once you're in, you have access to the database. That means you have access to those job seekers that are registered. You're, you're able to sort them, view their resume, view their contact information, and you can use the system to reach out to those job seekers. We also can help facilitate recruiting out of our offices. We call it an on-site recruitment. Uh, we, you can also use our facilities for other needs. Maybe you are opening a new location and you don't have a conference room set up yet. Those types of recruiting things you can use our offices for. Um, so we have a lot of other things to help you with that recruitment piece that is at no cost. And we would love to get you signed up for any of our virtual job fairs. Any workforce development specialists can do that. All of that can be found on jobs.us.gov under the employer section. All right, very good. Just have a minute, minute left. Mark Noll will give you the last word. What's uh, what's your biggest takeaway from the discussion about the Great Resignation? Maybe the you know the biggest misconception or the, the last thing you'd like to say about this? Uh, what I take away from it is it's interesting how much we're talking about how hard it is to find labor, how much might not be there in relation to what was there in the past. But yet the state of Utah has still grown 4% across that whole time period. So obviously, even in the midst of all the struggles and so on, the end result is labor is being found. It might be more of a challenge now than it was two years ago, five years ago, so on. But we are a state where we are growing. We're still growing. We're finding labor. Um, we have opportunities in the state. Others from outside of the state see that, are coming here. Uh, again, it's um, us, Idaho, Texas, and Arizona are the only states that have more jobs now than they did before the pandemic started. And so a lot of it has to do with where we're located in the beautiful mountains and so on. People want to come here. I, the end result is we talk a lot about our problems, but we still the underlying issue or situation is that we are still growing. Well, we uh, thank uh, each of you for being with us today. Very interesting conversation, a useful conversation. Mark Knoll, Chief Economist uh, with Utah Department of Workforce Services. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Sheila Olerich, uh, State Program Specialist. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And Amy Lowe, Workforce Development Specialist. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're all here to help Utah. So. Very thanks good. for having us. Very good. All with the Utah Department of Workforce Services. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. In the late 19th century, black settlers in the Salt Lake Valley used the waters of Mill Creek Canyon to create a thriving community of their own. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Where water is, people gather. This was true for indigenous peoples of Utah, as well as Mormon colonists and African-American settlers who arrived in the 19th century. During a period where black Americans faced extreme discrimination, the waters of Mill Creek Canyon that flow from the Wasatch Mountains provided a place of community and refuge to some of Utah's first black residents. Knowing that the arid region of Utah would pose a challenge to farming, some Southern Mormon converts sent enslaved people ahead of them in 1847 to prepare the land for their arrival. Some of the very first Mormon homes, gardens, and canals were built by enslaved people. After slavery was abolished in Utah, 
many black residents were given the opportunity to acquire land. They looked outside Salt Lake City to the areas now known as Cottonwood Heights, Fort Union, and Mill Creek to build bountiful orchards and farms, and start their new lives as freed individuals. According to the U.S. Census data from the late 19th century, these black settlers usually lived close together. Many families intermarried and appeared to have helped one another adjust to their new lives after enslavement. Later in life, children of these black homesteaders fondly called the Mill Creek Farm area the hill and remembered riding up to it from a state street in a horse-drawn buggy. In Mill Creek, Mormon millwrights used the canyon's powerful waters to make lumber and grist mills. The water was strong enough to divert into canals that watered some of Utah's very first fruit trees. Black settlers, like Samuel Chambers, purchased Mill Creek property to farm and sell produce to raise money to help his family reunite in Utah after being separated under slavery. In the desert home of Utah, communal efforts to utilize water resources made this kind of settlement possible. But for black farmers like Chambers, buying land in Mill Creek would have also been an important symbol of newfound freedom, stability, and independence in the aftermath of the Civil War. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Westside Coffee Company on 100 West in Logan, offering breakfast and lunch with vegan and gluten-free options. Kitchen open from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pastry and non-cooked items available all day until 6 p.m. Monday through Sunday. Details at thewestsidecoffeecompany.com. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM, Logan. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio.